There are more important things on my plate than chasing temperamental film stars. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to the second edition of A Raspberry Movie and a Footlong Dog. This edition will be taking a look at the horror portmanteau films produced by the Amicus Group. And we're looking at portmanteau films in general throughout this, uh, this edition. And when we open up the vault of monochrome, I take a look at uh, Ealing Films' foray into the portmanteau horror itself from the 1945 film Dead of Night. Let's kick it off and take a look at Amicus, the studios studios that dripped dripped blood. You cheated me, all three of you. And I'm going to have revenge. Those patients, locked away by themselves. Lost in their own fantasies and no attempt made to bring them back to reality. There are five of us here. And none of us has a future. That's nonsense. There are no such things as vampires. We very we plan films very, very carefully. That's really what we do better than anyone else, I think. In this age of CGI and bespoke effects-driven horror, it's hard to find a place for the lowly British portmanteau films of the late 60s, early 70s. In fact, the era today is often glossed over as the time that film disappeared down a rabbit hole of bad quality and decency, often lampooning the fashions and the hairstyles along with the long-drawn-out and needlessly padded scripts. But I think those naysayers are, are wrong, really wrong. For the world of the 1970s portmanteau horror is an area to be studied and savoured. The strange, the fear, the unknown, the terrifying, the mysterious. At one time or another during our lives, we may, any one of us, encounter it. This stick can fall off. I call it my house of A world where the British film industry was barely keeping its head above water, say through the determination of small dwindling number of independent production companies. Ask your average film goer over the age of 40 to name a company who produced British horror. The default answer is usually guaranteed to be Hammer. At the term horror portmanteau, and they'll either ask you what a portmanteau is or be stumped for an answer. There is no doubt that the Hammer brand was the dominant face of British horror over almost a 20-year period, which led to the lesser-known companies being eclipsed. I refer to the smaller concerns such as Tygon and Amicus. These two companies were very small concerns within the sphere of filmmaking, but boy, did they produce some of the more memorable movies of the late 60s into the mid-70s. Tygon, yeah, produced such lovelies as the extremely violent and brutal historical number The Witchfinder General from 1968, starring the stalwart actor Vincent Price, and the extremely unnerving Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971. I mean, Tygon wasn't predominantly designed to produce horror, but they had a talent for finding a subject matter that led their films to obtain a sort of unique quality, if you like. To be fair, 
They made some right old howlers that should have been buried at a planning stage, like the Body Stealers from 1969 starring Patrick Allen and Connery. Neil Connery. Yes, the great man's brother, whose character dies off camera in the most bizarre way. That is almost certainly 91 minutes of my life I will never get back again. So this leads us to our hero of the small filmmakers, that lightweight that took on the champ in the form of Hammer and slam dunked them down into the ground, that plucky underdog with the determination of a small yappy dog that's trying to annoy every house in the street with its incessant barking. The brainchild of Milton Sabotsky, the main producer and artistic creator of the company, and the money raiser and US-backed Max J. Rosenberg. Amicus would produce several successful films starting in 1972 with the hit musical film It's Trad Dad right up until 1977 and its final production The People That Time Forgot starring Troy McClure. Its house style wasn't Hammer but is often confused with Hammer when viewed today. That really gives us our in if you like to how the company came about and how the founders came to enter the world of British horror and make their indelible historical stamp on its rum. Sabotsky and Rosenberg were fighting against each other originally, um, trying to get hold of the rights to Frankenstein, and they were hoping to reignite the interest in creating a British film version. But instead, competing, they gave up competing against each other and they joined forces. They submitted a new screenplay for a Frankenstein film in the 1950s to Associated Artists Productions, who were interested in it. So much so, they passed it to a company called Hammer Films. You know where we're going, don't you? The screenplay entitled Frankenstein and the Monster was considered to fall short of the expectation of what Hammer wanted. It came in under time, and by the time they budgeted it out, it was way over budget. So the two were paid off for their works, but their script was still kept. The rest is British film history as regards the journey that Hammer took. Undaunted, the two creators soldiered on and created their own production company, Amicus Films, and based themselves at Shepperton Studios. When I say base themselves at Shepperton Studios, it wasn't really in the studio complex or their administration building. Amicus started and finished its days in a wooden hut about the size of two garden sheds within the grounds of Shepperton. The walls were lined with hundreds of paperback books which Stabotsky would read from cover to cover. It had a couple of desks, heating, lighting, a telephone, and as much charged pulse of creativity that could make your hair stand on end. I'll tell you what, I'll let Milton himself explain how the company was set up and how it worked. We have no office in London, we don't see any need for it. We're a working company, constantly making films, and therefore no large overheads that are passed on to the people who finance the films. That was taken from the short BBC documentary shown on BBC Two on Wednesday the 29th of July 1972. It was called Two's a Company and it followed the filming of Amicus's latest film, Asylum, but more on that film later. After the company's success with It's Trad Dad, and that's Milton Sabotsky's favourite by the way, the company started out on its journey to reach the top of its game. Still with the memories of the rejected Frankenstein screenplay weighing heavily on his mind, Milton took the company into direct conflict with the master filmmakers of Hammer and resurrected another horror pastiche, that of the portmanteau horror. So what is a portmanteau, some of you may be asking. 
Well, it's several smaller productions contained within a linking narrative. They were first produced during the silent era by the German filmmakers, one of the most famous being Anhimli Gestinklichton, released in November 1919. Forgive my pronunciation there. This featured death and the devil bringing to life five separate stories within a magical painting. It's a film that would be made remade in 1932 under the title The Living Dead by its original director. By the way, an himli translated means eerie story, which naturally leads us to ask, what was Amicus's first eerie story? And who did it cast? and promote to sell to its American backers as its first foray into the bottomless abyss that is the horror industry. Here's a big hint. I was hoping it, it might not be. Oh, for heaven's sake. What is all this nonsense? No nonsense, I assure you. Is there anyone else who would wish to try? Approaching Hammer's two biggest names, Amicus set in motion the first of their portmanteau films, hitting the soundstage at Shepperton in 1964. Those two big names were clearly getting top billing, but it's the supporting actors that grabbed my interest when I first viewed this back in the early 80s. The inclusion of such names as musician Roy Castle being cast as a last-minute replacement for, wait for it, Acker Bilk, who wasn't available. It gave Castle a chance to indulge himself in his stock-in-trade, that of playing the trumpet. In fact, Castle would later comment that his first tentative steps into the world of filmmaking would be through horror and science fiction, the latter being one of the lead roles alongside Cushing in Amicus's production of Doctor Who and the Daleks under the name of AARU Productions, made in the same year. He did probably forget his blink-and-your-miss-it appearance in the film Sink the Bismarck. Established Canadian-born actor Neil McCullum, a familiar face in 1960s TV screens, would hunt up the more experienced supporting characters. And OK, now it gets really interesting. Wait for this one. Disc jockey and broadcasting legend Australian Alan Fluff Freeman has a storyline set aside all for himself. Not just as a key supporting actor, but one of the main players as Bill Rogers. Now you think this was just a random whim of Milton to recruit a face that perhaps the teenagers would recognise. But there's more to this than meets the eye. Remember I said, it's Trad Dad? Yeah. Was Milton's favourite movie? Well, he seemed so impressed with Freeman's performance as himself in that he cast him in Amicus's first horror. And it's not a one-off for Freeman. He would appear in a handful of films, often portraying a, a disc jockey or even himself. And finally, we have a young, fresh-faced actor looking for a break into the film industry, travelling all the way from Canada. His name was Donald Sutherland. No, I've never heard of him either. Sutherland was on his first film here, and his second appearance alongside Lee. In fact, in his first encounter, he played no less than three separate roles in 1964's Castle of the Living Dead. House of Horrors also graces the appearance of other luminaries in, in smaller roles, such as Bernard Lee, Jeremy Kemp, Kenny Lynch, Max Adrian, the founder of the RSA and National Theatre, and the most dependable, Michael Goff. Directed by Freddie Francis, the director of Hammer's The Evil of Frankenstein, there's the Frankenstein link again, Francis will often go on to direct seven amicus features and several films from the very short-lived Tyburn Films Company. 
a company that, that produced lacklustre and out-of-step horror features. On the 25th of May, 1964, the film went into production at Shepperton Studios. The script, by Sabotsky, was far from being fresh. In fact, it was based along the lines of the 1945 Ealing Portmanteau horror. Um, it was reworked through Sabotsky to be used in the 1948 TV series in America, which never came about. Remember the clip earlier where Sabotsky mentioned no overheads? This was also repeated in the production's turnaround time. It wasn't being tight with money, but getting the damn thing out as soon as possible to make money to continue the process for the next production was, was really key. Filming on the, on the stage was completed in a eye-watering six weeks, a shockingly short timescale compared to modern production standards today. But it was necessary in those days for small film productions. After all, it had a release date of the 5th of February 1965, and you had to keep to those dates. We make better shooting schedules, I think. Uh, we make tight budgets, but they're very accurate budgets. Five strangers rush to catch a train out of London, and they all find themselves travelling in the same compartment. They are joined by a ragtag male who has the appearance of a travelling peddler carrying a large suitcase. During the journey, he drops a deck of cards, which is picked up by one of the others and examined by them. It's a set of tarot cards and has the power to predict the future of all the five passengers in that carriage. Christopher Lee's character is rude and dismissive towards Cushing's traveller, saying he's nothing more than a confidence stricture who will probably ask for money next. One by one, each of the passengers takes a journey into the future. In their mind's eye, they visualise the horrific future events that, aware, that await them. McCallum's character goes first, watching as the peddler deals out four cards on top of his case, and one by one he turns them over. The future events are projected into McCallum's mind. An arrival at an ancient Scottish castle where something, something evil, evil is lurking. Exploring the castle, he locates a hidden room behind a wall containing a single coffin, which contains the cursed remains of the original owner of the castle, who was murdered by a rival family centuries ago. During the night, he discovers that an evil presence, a werewolf, stalks the grounds on the hunt for his historic murderers. Needless to say, it doesn't really end too well for McCullum. The peddler is asked to deal the fifth card. He sneaks a peek at the card. It's death. He replaces it into the pack, refusing to show it. Much to the derision of Lee's character, who continues to berate him as a charlatan. It's Fluff Freeman's turn now, and we're taken to a family home where Fluff lives and works. But the foliage is about to turn hostile, firstly strangling the family's dog after it barks at a stretching out vine, then strangling a scientist called in to investigate. The situation grows ever more perilous as the plants start to engulf their home, and with no way out, their fate is sealed. Again, the old peddler refuses to show the fifth card, and as expected, it is, it is death. death. The cards are placed under Lee's nose once more, but he turns away. The old man's hand sweeps the carriage and places the cards in front of Roy Castle. He accepts, in all innocence, and is quite light-hearted about what he sees in an innocent game. The peddler warns him not to mock the card of a god. You are a musician. Yeah. A lot of people don't seem to think so. <laughs> ah, that's more like it. That's my mother-in-law. <laughs> Do not jest at the image of a god. A god? 
His stories takes him to a bar in the Jamaican province where he play he plays his, his trumpet for a living. But he's on the lookout for that special something that will boost his profile and make him a rich man. He makes a joke about voodoo to his audience. And this is met with a really cold response. His friend, played by Kenny Lynch, warns him not to fool around when mentioning voodoo. This is a superstitious community where they fear the ancient powers. Taking no heed of the warning, he sneaks into a voodoo ceremony and takes notes down of the tunes they are playing. Caught by the high priest, very painful, he's warned never to play the tune or he will bring down the vengeance of the god Dumbara. It belongs to the god Dumbara, known only to his own people. For centuries. Oh, well, well, if it's that old, then it's out of copyright. I can just maybe give that. Give Chrissy my share. God, Dumbala is a jealous God. If you steal from him, he will be revenged. Wherever you are, he will be revenged. Do not steal from the God, Dumbala. I think you can guess the rest. The card is the same as the others, but this time they force the peddler to show it. Now, this is Lee's turn, and it's probably the grimmest tale of them all. One of arrogance, vanity and embitterment. It's a tale of revenge compared to the rest of the sorry travellers. But if you want to know more, you'll have to watch the film. I mean, I can't tell you everything now, can I? Or what will be left for your future? This leaves the lowly Donald Sutherland. His story is shoehorned in as if he's been forgotten about. But it's no less shocking as any of the others. And ends with a twist that you'll never see coming. And of course, the result from the cards is being the same as the others. By now, I bet they wish they travelled by coach. With all their fortunes told, they round on their host. Why have you done this? What do you want? Who are you? If you're not guessed. Disappearing into the darkness of, of a tunnel, the train re-emerges, minus the old peddler. The group start to panic, but the train slows down and enters their station. Relieved to find their feet on solid ground, their real fate is revealed to them on the platform. They're not going to tell you what it is. Again, you're going to have to watch the film. The production values waver a bit from each story. The, the castle story is given the full beans. However, the demon plant story is really bright and overlit. It goes without saying that the musical story is a brilliant opportunity to showcase the skills of castle. But reading on who would he replaced at the last minute, it would have been interesting to see how Acker Bilk would have put the portrayal into uh, into our laps. The Lee story is a master carb of the macabre, with blood, disembodied limbs, making uh, an unexpected appearance. His comeuppance is as shocking and beautifully underplayed, reminding the audience, you ultimately reap what you sow. And the final story is a good old tale of vampirism and the folly of making assumptions without reading the whole situation. And as for the old peddler? Well, it goes without saying, this is a masterful performance from Cushing. With this and Lee's presence, it lends a certain gravitas to the film. It's neither heavy going nor slow paced. It's a film you can watch without looking at your watch. And if you don't like the story, don't worry, there'll be another one along in a minute. The beauty of such a format, that it's the gift that keeps on giving. And it stood amicus in good stead well into the early 70s. After the success of Dr terror's house of horrors amicus went on to produce five more portmanteau style films from 1967 to 1973 the torture garden starring burgess meredith as the devil now there's a visual to get your head around the house that dripped blood which really didn't 
if you're wondering where the opening line from the podcast came from, it's taken from there. Asylum, possibly the most unnerving and horrifying of the lot, where the inmates and staff of the local bedlam are not always as they seem. To Tales of the Crypt, with Sir Ralph Richardson is the overseer of the afterlife, but the occupants of the waiting room must first atone for the sins. In this one, I dare you not to wince at Nigel Patrick being forced to run down an extremely narrow passageway, which has its walls festooned with razor blades. Oh, God, I'm wincing at that, thinking about it. And finally, The Vault of Horror, a similar story of five people trapped in a strange dining room of stone, where they all regale their strange premonitions of horror and death. And it features Tom Baker as a very bohemian artist the year before he became Doctor Who. Amicus's last horror would be a, a groundbreaker, if you like. It was made in 1974 and it was called The Beast Must Die. Amicus took the fantastic step of casting a man and woman of colour in its lead roles, a move well overdue and revolutionary for the time. Its last three films were family adventure stories, The Land That Time Forgot, At the Earth's Core, or as I shall know it, Peter Cushing's Doctor Who's third outing, and the curtain finally fell after The People That Time Forgot. In 1977, Sabotsky shut up shop and left these shores never to return. And Amicus, well, Amicus would fade into history and be forever known as the studio that dripped blood. Oh yes, I nearly forgot. The front cover of the edition features the hideous face of Jason, the serial killer, from the house that dripped blood. But of course, Jason never really existed except in the mind of his creator, an author of horror stories played by Denham Elliott. Well, that was until he wrapped his hands around Elliott's psychologist's neck and strangles him I'll leave you with the demonic laughter of Jason. I remind all my listeners to be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. But I've been writing about murderers for years, and I've never wanted to become one. I mean, why should I suddenly want to do so now? Even in my subconscious. I hope you enjoyed that, and now it's time to open the Vault of Monochrome. <laughs> Sitting down and choosing a film to watch out of sort of that cavalcade of loads of stuff that piles up inside your cupboard, this one sort of finds its way to the back and hides, quite purposely really. But um, I always seem to sort of dust it out at Christmas time. I don't know why. Just, to me, it appears to be a Christmas type of film. It's The Dead of Night, and it was made in 1945. Now, don't switch off, don't switch off, because I know you've probably been put off by the fact that it's so old. Don't be. I mean, yes, it was released on the 9th of September 1945, and this is four months after the Second World War ended. Well, VE Day, anyway. But there's no mention of the war at all in this film which is, is, is just probably what the um, cinema goers at that particular time wanted. So what have we got? Well, it's, it's a misnomer, really, to, to call this a horror film. It's, it's more of a psychological horror than blood and gore. In fact, it, it does play with your head, and it plays along the principle of taking the audience for a ride. Not a ride that they, 
they will go at the end they're not happy with and they've been conned but it's a ride that they will buy into in fact martin scorsese places fifth on his list to the most frightening um horror films he's ever seen mm. That's an interesting one, I suppose. Well, it's directed by four different directors and um, with such names as Charles Crichton, Basil Dearden as directors. I mean, you can't really go wrong and they're, they're stalwarts of, of Ealing anyway. In fact, the, the, a lot of the cast are stalwarts of, uh, of the, uh, what we would call the repertory company, if you like, of Ealing Films. Our main character is the architect, played by Mervyn Johns. I mean, he turns up... What, a few years earlier, um, shooting Nazis in uh, When the Day Well. He, he, he turns up quite a lot in a lot of um, the films made by Ealing. We've got some wonderful characters. Googie, Willer, Googie Withers. Mm. Always can't get my teeth around that one. Googie Withers. I always think that's a fantastic name for an actress. She's in there somewhere. Who else have we got looking at? Ah, oh, well, one of the biggest film roles at that moment in time for Michael Redgrave, or Sir Michael Redgrave, who would uh, go on to play Barnes Wallace. The sh- his story is uh, one we leave till last, because everything runs in an order here. And it all happens to start with an architect waking up, and the architect paid by Mervyn Johns has an appointment down in the countryside. And he makes his way down to this beautiful sort of Middle England, rolling countryside, to this largest farmhouse. And he's there to design a few bits and pieces to be added. I think it's an extra couple of bedrooms or something. And he's met by the house owner, Mr Elliot Foley. His wife is there, Mrs Foley, although we never find out her first name. And there are a number of guests staying at the house that weekend. Uh, Dr Van Stratton, a very imposing gentleman with a very cod accent. And a penchant for permanently polishing his glasses. A Joyce Granger, a Hugh Granger, so equally they're Mr. and Mrs. Granger, presumably. And teenager just visiting Sally O'Hara and the format of Googie Withers playing Joan Cotland. The weird thing is, when the architect comes into the house, he knows exactly where to hang his coat and exactly where the sitting room is. It's as if he's been there before. Isn't it, John? Only wish it were. I've seen you in my dreams. Sounds like a sentimental song, doesn't it? I've dreamt about you over and over again, Doctor. It hardly turns you into a mental case. After all, recurring dreams are quite common. But how did I come to dream about you? And I've never set eyes on you in my life. Very likely you've seen my photograph in the papers. That's why my face seems familiar to you. I don't think so. And even if it were, is that any reason why I should keep on dreaming? And it is very much that. It's it's a dream. This is a, a recurring dream that the architect is having. And he can identify each person within the room. A little bit flummoxed by all this, um, the, get, uh, the, the, the people in the house put it down to him of having a long journey down from London. So they, they sit him down and he starts to recant the tale that, look, he knows who every one of them is. He even says to Dr. Van Stratton, you'll end up treating me. I'll be your patient. And Van Stratton says, I don't even know you. And he says, well, this is weird because this is major deja vu I'm having here. To which Stuart Granger, a racing driver, as we find out, suddenly pipes up with a very strange story. He has an accident one day, or he's recalling having an accident at Brooklyn's Racing. And for those of you who don't know, Brooklyn's uh, was a massive racing circuit uh, in the 20s and 30s, just outside London. And he has a horrible crash and ends up in hospital. And he has the weirdest experience one night. 
I mean, initially they look as though he might have damage to the brain, but it, it, as time possess, passes when he's in, in his hospital room, he, it's quite clear he hasn't. He, he's just he's just recovering from shock, Bailey. His body's in trauma. So his nurse tucks him in for the evening, and he picks up his book. He looks at the looks at the clock, and it's ten to ten. And in the background, you can hear some music playing because his window's wide open. It's obviously a hot evening, but his curtains are pulled. So you uh, you see the nurse pull the curtains, and you can see the cityscape behind the curtains. They just close the curtains. Whilst he's reading his book, and the nurse has left, the music abruptly stops. And so does the ticking of his clock. He looks at the clock and it says quarter past four. And he thinks it's very, very odd. And he goes to the window and there's no noise. There's nothing. And he pulls back the window and, and the scape is completely different. And he looks down upon a gravel drive and sat down there is this hearse. Horse-drawn hearse. Full plumage, the lot. Nothing in the back. And the hearse driver looks up at him and jolly says in a very macabre way. <laughs> and this is, this is the thing about this film. It's very dark and the humour is very dark. And the hearse driver comments... goes cold and just steps off and bus conductor shrugs his shoulder rings the bell and off goes the bus just down the road the bus swerves to avoid hitting a truck and it collides with a bridge and plummets into the canal presumably killing everybody on board the bus so you know these are the type of stories you're going to be looking at it's very dark that story is very dark some of them aren't so dark uh, the christmas party one is the teenage girl recalling going to a Christmas party, then playing hide-and-seek in this really old house, and finding a secret passageway that leads up into the attic, where there was a child, a small child, uh, dressed in clothing, say, from about a 100 years ago. And the child's crying, and he says he's he's left in here by by his his mother, who won't let him out. He, he, he doesn't go out, he's not allowed to go out. So she says, I'll go and get the others and bring them back. And she goes back down and says to the host of the party, look, there's a child upstairs in the attic and it's bawling its eyes out. Who is it? And you can imagine the reaction that um, you've seen the ghost then. What ghost? The ghost of the child who was locked in the attic and um, the, ch the child dies in the attic of a broken heart because his mother won't let him out to play with the other children. So that's... All right, it's not light-hearted, but it's not as heavy as, as some of them. Um, in fact, you do get lulled into a false sense of security. And it does feel like all these guests are sat around now um, regaling tales. It's, it's like sitting by the fireside and saying, let me tell you about a ghost story that I heard once. It is very much along that vein. Naturally, you'll say it's a pure coincidence. Oh, you can't say that, Doctor. With the odds a million to one against. You know, I am a little indignant. I am driven to the conclusion it's all part of a very carefully prearranged plan. An extraordinarily elaborate practical joke at my expense. Oh, really? You seriously think we cooked the whole thing up between us? Well, there's an explanation. It's not any more far-fetched than Mr. Craig's. So we come on to the Haunted Mirror. Now, this one has been used several times. Even Amicus has used this one. It's quite an interesting one, and it has so many possibilities. 
even Amicus used a variation as well as this actual story of having a haunted uh, door which creates a room into a different time. So here we have Joan Cotlin, played by Googie Withers, explaining about her and her husband, or her husband-to-be at that moment in time, and they're sat round and they're discussing buying houses, and she's brought him back a present for the new house. And this is huge, ornate, ancient, when I say ancient, antique mirror. Beautiful, three-sided mirror. And he puts it up on his wall, because he's vain, obviously, because that's the type of thing you bought a guy in those days. And so that evening, they're dressing up in their best tails, and tucks to go out and he's straightening his tie and he looks into the mirror and the reflection is of himself but inside a room that he has no knowledge of i mean the room's about two three hundred years old but he has absolutely no knowledges so he you know the usual thing blinking it goes back to normal or looks around the room and nothing's changed brings it up in conversation in dinner strangest thing happened this evening darling i traveled 200 years in the past and came to the looked through my mirror and saw a different room that's a very bad accident isn't it <laughs> and then the upshot of that story is that things go from bad to worse to the point that he starts to break down and become obsessed with this mirror so much show that his wife joan courtland goes off and, and speaks to the people who sold them the mirror. And they say, well, yes, it, it, it belonged to this, this chap who had it in his house. And um, oh, centuries old, you, the history, there's a, there's a murder attached to history, goes, goes the, uh, the guy who, was, who sold it to her. Now, you'd have thought he'd have told this to her, really, wouldn't you? I know it's not what you're expecting to take the mirror back in. The mirror creates an image um, of the past you're not expecting that but you would have thought somebody would have turned around and said well wax lyrical about the fact that there's a legend of a murder surrounding this mirror so much so that the reflection in the mirror drove the uh, owner mad and he murdered his wife sort of thing you bring up in conversation as a sort of uniqueness to this mirror but it was never brought up once they were selling it which was quite weird but ultimately happy ending joan rips the mirror off the wall and smashes it and breaks the spell now this 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 last one well second from last one is the comedy number uh, but we'll come to that in a moment because in most of these portmanteaus the linking narratives are just just that they're just linking narratives which have no representation of the main story arc but this is completely different the people meeting up in in their sitting room and trying literally to outdo each other telling tales of horror and creepy stories and things that go bump in the night it's all being woven in to the destiny of everybody in that room and judging each one of them when i say judging trying to assess each one of them is dr van stratton now van stratton has been challenged by every one of that group who are telling a story to tell them well there's got to be supernatural stuff in the world because this has happened to me i saw this was going to happen in the future i heard this happened in the past and everybody and, and everybody's telling these stories and he's typical doctor i don't know about your history and the more the more they tell these stories the more you think it's a, a, a collective case of hysteria and you're thinking now nah, this is this is really really well and and also this is after the the war so you know they're going to be a population that are um, suffering a great deal from delayed shock over the bombings and deaths so everybody's going to be a bit on edge and being stuck in a dark cinema for 103 minutes 
it's going to and a massive screen you're going to buy into this you're almost going to fall through the screen into that world and it's it's really weird so when it starts getting heavy you've got to have your comic interlude and your comic interlude is coming up quite soon but be careful what you wish for here i mean we got Basilrad and Norton Wayne. Now they appeared in a film called The Lady Vanishes, playing Charles and Cordicolt, two civil servants. And they had such a wonderful comic air about them. They, they were actors, but they, they sparked off each other. They'd never worked with each other before, and they sparked off each other. And they had a typical, well, I don't know about you, old boy. This is this looks like a nasty case of espionage to me. Yes, I think you're right. Heavens to Murgatroyd. That kind of dry-witted British humour. So they brought them back and paired them up for the golfer's story, which is, on one hand, quite humorous, and on the other, bizarrely bonkers, absolutely bonkers. So you've got these two, for want of us, obsessive golfers, whose golfing is handicapped. They all go out and they all play golf when the grounds are covered in snow. In fact, that's the first time we see them playing golf in the snow. So they are fantastic at golf. They both got equal handicaps. They are both unbeatable except by each other. They they did just, just fantastic obsessed with the game. You know, you know the type of people can be obsessed with a game of golf. Until one day, as they're waiting to go out and play golf, a most beautiful woman by the name of Mary Lee wafts past them, literally wafts past them, and they both catch their eye. Well, it all goes downhill from there, really, doesn't it? Their golf goes to absolute pants. So I'm going to give you this scene. There's three of them here, head rests on their hands at the bar. In the middle of them is Mary, and one each side is Parrot and Potter, played by Basil and, and Norton. And they're discussing the dilemma they're in. And they're discussing it as if she wasn't there. And basically they're saying to her, well, our golf's gone to pot, hasn't it? And it's all her fault. Well, one of us is going to have to marry her just to sort this out. And so it becomes a competition more than anything else. Mayors seem to look on them with equal favour. And the result, of course, was complete deadlock. We can't go on like this, old man. She's ruining my game. Mine too. Every time I take a stroke, I see her wretched face. I keep on hearing her tiresome voice, just as I'm swinging. They'll be raising our handicaps soon. She must choose one of us. But there's nothing to choose. We're both as good as Bobby Jones. Very nearly. <sighs> Wish you were dead, old man. Just as good if you were. George, I've got it. What? We'll play for her. Tomorrow morning. Eighteen holes. Match play. The loser to vanish from the scene. Forever. They play her for a game of golf and they're on the last hole. And Norton Wayne basically cheats and says, now I've got her hand in marriage. And Basil Rafford just turns around and goes, well, it's curtains for me then. And the deal was they both made it to each other. The other one would leave the scene permanently. And he took that literally because taking his golf clubs with him, he walks into the lake and disappears under the water. And the only thing you see of him ever again is his floating golfing cap and the bubbles around it, which eventually stop. So the great day comes upon us. Norton's walking the beautiful Mary Lee down the aisle. And who turns up? Parrot. But um, 
he can only be seen by uh, Norton's Potter. And he says, listen, old man, I know you're a bit of a cheat and a cad, but we need to sort this out. And so you'll have the usual humorous byplay of him having a conversation with a ghost and everybody else wondering what the hell is he doing. So it's their wedding night. You know what it's like on a wedding night. Well, some of you might. You sat there uncomfortably and then your darling wife goes to you, as they do in this case, I'm going up to bed now, darling. Hint, hint. So off his wife goes to bed and and one of the things that Parrot says that he cannot leave Potter's side more than six feet. He has to be with him within touching distance, basically. That is the curse that he's put on him. He can't live even on his wedding night. But, you know, Potter understands, uh, not Potter, Parrot understands that, the ghost, and says, look, I've, I've got a spell and I can make myself disappear for a little while because, quite frankly, old man, I don't want to be around while you and your wife are consummating your marriage well it all goes horribly wrong and uh, the wrong person manages to get made invisible and disappears from the scene leaving the ghost and a very very ca- weird case of uh, of wife swap because as his wife calls down to uh, her new husband he's not there is he so what does the ghost do well of course he's a gentleman he steps into his place and there the story ends very weird um strangest case of wife swapping i've ever heard a bit more than keys in the um, in the fruit bowl there what's going to happen now darling oh darling Ronnie passes or do i make passes This is a story that that most people remember um, who've seen this film because it eclipses everything else that has gone before it. There's something really, really unsettling about a ventriloquist's dummy. It's just the way they are, isn't it? It's just horrible. Um, It's a person throwing their voice. The dummy seems a little um, false and unpredictable, shall we say. In this case, the ventriloquist, played by the in, in a way that is the most disturbing I've ever seen, and has never, ever been countered by Michael Redgrave, who plays Maxwell Freer, a f- fantastic ventriloquist, usually, and his doll. Now, his doll reminds me very much of um, Lord Charles, when you used to have in the 70s, and his name is Hugo. Now, Hugo always wears a dinner jacket and is well-presented and is very polite. Well, that is until... Frere is starting to have schizophrenic outbursts and who else can he vent these schizophrenic outbursts through than his dummy and also he's paranoid as well well this is really good isn't it so this is going to end well so he's introduced to an american called sylvester key who is also a ventriloquist and when they're first introduced hugo says to key i'd like to work with you because I'm fed up with working my assistant here. His assistant being the ventriloquist. The ventriloquist is in absolute shock. Now, this is the strange thing. You think, well, hold on a minute. You're you're throwing your voice here. So you know what it's going to be saying. And this is where the audience is going, well, hold on. Has this doll got a life of its own? And you have to keep the focus. The doll is not real. But it's done so well that you can't tell anymore as the story progresses. Long or short of it. Redgrave becomes so bizarrely obsessed 
with Sylvester Key trying to steal Hugo. That he ends up shooting him when he finds Hugo in Sylvester McKee, at Sylvester Key's room. And you're not, you're not expecting that. Sylvester's not expecting that. Sylvester's gone to bed. And a drunken Michael Redcliffe kicks in his door. And he comes and starts searching his room and finds the doll hidden. Pulls out a gun and, and, and shoots Key. He's arrested and he's, he's taken to prison. And this is where Dr. Van Stratton comes in because he is asked to overlook the patient's mental health because they think he's absolutely barking, completely barking, because he blames the dummy for the murder, not the fact that um, he's working the dummy, the fact that the dummy, without his knowledge, has got through a locked door and into Key's room, and he is blaming the doll for building him up to kill him. This is where it gets creepy. This is where it gets really, really creepy. So he sat in his cell, Michael Redgrave, and Van Stratton says, I've got a little experiment I'm going to do. Take the dummy in and put it into the cell. So he, a guard comes in, puts Hugo down, closes the door, and leaves Van Stratton watching through the bars at um, Redgrave. Redgrave initially recoils and then relaxes picks up the dummy and starts talking to Hugo and Hugo starts talking to him back because of the schizophrenic nature of his his mind Hugo starts to basically blame him for the murder and this is the uh, this is a weird way for Michael Redgrave's character to admit that yeah he did kill somebody he deliberately shot that person because he was jealous because he thought he was going to steal Hugo but it gets out of control and then the juxtaposition changes where you're now feeling sorry for Hugo. Hugo's telling him some home truths. Even Dr Van Stratton is being sucked into this and Redgrave grabs a pillow and promptly tries to smother the dummy and you can the, the, the sounds that the dummy makes are horrendous and Van Stratton is yelling at the guards to open the door and he's yelling at Michael Redgrave to stop it, to stop it, you're killing him, you're killing him. And the audience is now, I should imagine, going along with this because they're thinking Hugo is real. And there's a horrible moment where as the door is opening, he throws Hugo to the floor and he starts kicking his head in. And the noises he makes are just repulsive, they're horrible they're horrible and the camera just pans down and you've got a smashed face of a doll not little Hugo oh no I'm going to team up with Sylvester maybe we'll come and visit you you know private show for the loonies uh. oh Maxwell I don't get excited I was only joking you know me And then Van Stratton clearly realises that he's been taken in by what's happened. Um, so that's Van Stratton's story, the ventriloquist. It's the most disturbing one there is. And it is the one that seems to be sort of um, the norm for how people look at ventriloquists. How does the story end? In a very bizarre way. Because everybody leaves the room whilst Van Stratton has finished his story. And the architect... Uh, Mervyn Johns says to him look um, I, you've all told me stories you all have a case of deja vu even you and you can't explain it you're the psychologist and he goes to him I know why I was brought here 
I have to kill a stranger. I know I have to kill a stranger. And as he's walking behind Van Stratton, his face just changes from that confused, innocent person to a focused murderer. His eyes, his face, it just morphs as he removes his tie and promptly throttles the hell out of Van Stratton, killing him. And then, bizarrely, the whole of his world just turns into hallucination to hallucination to hallucination. And every character that has appeared in the film, including Hugo, reappear. And he starts this merry-go-round of about a minute and a half of visiting each world that's been described to him, when all of a sudden he wakes up in his own bed in an absolute sweaty mess and realises that he needs to go to work. Oh, he's got to, he's got an appointment. And he gets back in his car and the film starts. And you get the beginning of the film again. He's driving for the appointment. So his world is just a continuously stuck record. Fantastic. It really is. It really gets the audience. You're thinking, oh, this is a nice, light-hearted, because there's a little dark humour. I do like the dark humour of the hearse driver. There's room for one more inside. Um, <laughs> I think that would have uh, appealed to a lot of people. But to relax the audience, they give them the um, the golfer story before they go in with the really disturbing one, the one that makes you think not all murderers are the same. They're motivated by themselves or they're motivated by their mental health. And, in, and and then after the war, there would have been a lot of people suffering. And so that one would have hit, hit home. That one would have hit home. Production values are really good on this. They really are good. In fact, it's like a, it's like a play. It's set out like a play. You have the main act of the sitting room where everybody sits around the fireside and they tell their dark and doomy stories. And everybody gets involved and the audience and you get sucked in before you know it it's the end of the film you you don't know how, it's such a cacophony of weirdness at the end but there is a, a conclusion the conclusion is that this carries on and on and on it will carry on you can't break the cycle um, and even at one point the architect mervyn johns says i should have left i need to leave this house but they don't let him leave the house they they bring him back by saying i tell you what old man why don't you have a drink one for the road yeah that's good for drink driving isn't it one for the road and just relax yourself before you go home but he stays for another story and you always do isn't it however scary a story you always want to be scared that little bit more so when you're walking home it's a what's that noise behind me and it's very much that dead and night 1945 do not be put off by the year made by ealing films it's a wonderful little number seek it out watch it it's available you can buy the dvd from all good stockets or it's available on several platforms the trailer is on youtube you can get it on amazon prime and other such platforms so yeah do yourself a treat turn the lights down for this one it's a good one for turning the lights down curl up on the sofa watch this one it, you, you can't go wrong and this he says, banging his pad, was the model that every other portmanteau film used afterwards. It's fantastic. My name's Warren Cummings, and this has been the second edition of A Raspberry Movie and a Footlong Dog. Thanks for joining us, and I hope to see you again next edition. Take care.